Our scripture reading this morning comes from Jeremiah, the first chapter, verses 1 and 2, and then 4 through 19. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. The Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see an almond branch. Then the Lord said to me, You have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. The word of the Lord came to me a second time, saying, What do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. Then the Lord said to me, Out of the north disaster shall be let loose upon all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I am calling all the tribes of the kingdoms of the north, declares the Lord, and they shall come, and every one shall set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem, against all its walls, all around, and against all the cities of Judah. And I will declare my judgments against them for all their evil in forsaking me. They have made offerings to other gods and worshipped the deeds, the works of their own hands. But you, dress yourself for work. Arise and say to them everything that I command you. Do not be dismayed by them, lest I dismay you before them. And I, behold, I make you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Susan. Good morning. Uh, My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer, uh, and we're excited to have you here with us this morning. We have been, for almost a year now, been going through the Old Testament scriptures, and we're right to the, to the, the worst part uh, for God's people in the Old Testament, where he is about, uh, he's sending them into exile. Uh, Israel has gone already through the Assyrian army into exile in 722 AD. 586, God's going to bring the Babylonians from the north. That's the vision that Jeremiah sees here, the boiling pot that boils over and pours out from the north. The, 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 The Babylonian army is going to come. They're going to capture the city of Jerusalem. They're going to send God's people into exile. And uh, there's going to be death and destruction and great despair. Uh, But in between uh, those two two dates, 722 and 586, what we've been doing is in that 140 years or whatever it is there, uh, we've been looking at a number of different biographical sketches of people who played an important role in God's work among his people. And this morning we come to... Jeremiah the prophet. And Jeremiah was the man whom God sent, we're told here, to the priests and to the the spiritual and political leaders of the people to warn them 
about their sin and its consequences and the danger that it presented and ultimately the judgment that God was bringing against them because of their rebellion and disobedience. And it led me to think, you know, we, this is really not my forte. I'd rather not deal with subjects like this because they can be hard and not a lot of, uh, you know, fun. But it really is important, I think, for us to consider uh, that in many ways what the church has historically understood, that the church plays a role in the culture similar to the one given to the prophet Jeremiah here with his with his cultural moment. That in his ministry, I think we get a glimpse of our role in our particular, particular cultural moment as well, that we as the church are meant to live prophetically or as prophets in our day and time, facing similar circumstances to those that were faced here by this man, Jeremiah the prophet. And so that's what I want to talk about this morning, what it looks like for us to live, that's my phrase, to live prophetically in the culture that God has put us in How do we be faithful to do what he has called us to do there? And I just want to answer uh, or give you three things this morning, three questions that we need to answer, three parts of what it might mean for us to live prophetically. First, I just want to define it. What is that? What do I mean by that? What what is it that the Lord ultimately tells Jeremiah to do? What's Jeremiah's job? Secondly, what do we need? If if there's a certain thing God's calling us to, then what do we need to do? in order to to be obedient to it. So what does it mean to live prophetically, but what do we need? What resources and inner strength do we need to live that way? And then thirdly, how do we get what we need to live in the gospel of Jesus Christ? So those are our three points this morning. It's the three points of your outline there that I've provided for you, and so I just ask that you follow along with me as we look at at this. Last week, uh, Tony did a great job of talking uh, to, to those of you who might be here who are not a Christian uh, and are thinking about what that means this morning, I really this text really forces me to talk at the church and what it means for us as God's people uh, to to be faithful to texts like this and to roles like the one he's given us. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, that doesn't mean you can just tune out because this has no bearing on your life whatsoever. Uh, but just know that this morning, uh, to those of you who put your faith in Jesus and gone on public record with him, uh, there's particular import in the things that I think we have to say this morning, Okay. So let's look at this together. Let's just start first. What does it mean for us uh, to live prophetically? And I want to answer that in the general sense, and then I'd like to take up a couple of particulars from the text, okay? Generally, Jeremiah's role as a prophet was, we're told, he sent to a particular class of people. He was to remind the kings and the political powers and the spiritual rulers of God's people that there was that their job was to do God's will and to follow God's law. He was to remind the kings and political powers of the world in his day and time that there was a God in heaven and that they were his servants and that they should do what he called them to do. Eugene Peterson, who translated the message, wrote somewhere, I looked for it and couldn't find it, that it is the role of a pastor to keep people attentive to God, to to go to the, to the hospital rooms and to the wedding halls and to all the places that people of God congregate and to speak God into the circumstances of their lives. But that is not just the work of pastors, I think. It's what every single one of us should be doing for one another. And so this text has reference to just our ability to come as truth bearers into one another's lives. But if you notice, I've titled this sermon Living Prophetically Before the Powers because Jeremiah was the man... God chose to speak to the kings and the leaders of Judah to tell them of the coming judgment and to call them to repentance. And we have a similar role in our culture, I believe, 
And historically, whether it was the abolitionist movement during the Civil War or the Civil Rights Movement in the 50s and the 60s, the church has been at its absolute best when it has been willing to take a stand for what is right, to speak out against injustice in political policies and structures that oppress people, to name sin, to confront cultural idolatries, and to call the political and civil powers to repentance. And that's what it means. That's what it means. That's what, that's, that's what I mean when I use this phrase, to live prophetically. Now, there are a number of specifics that we can glean about what this looks like from this text and what God uh, calls Jeremiah to do here. So look uh, carefully with me at some of the things in the text. Down in verse 10, I want you to see first that there's a certain authority that God gives to the prophet, and I believe he gives to us as well. He says, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms. Jeremiah was to speak authoritatively into his cultural moment, to critique and to challenge and to confront. And the Hebrew literally means there, I make you an overseer. I'm making you an overseer. I'm putting you in charge of making sure those that are in positions of authority in your culture are doing what they're supposed to be doing. The kings and the rulers are being made subject to Jeremiah the prophet here because he speaks and acts with divine authority. That's shocking, I think. It would have been shocking to them. It's shocking to me. It's shocking to us as we read it because, of course, kings are kings and prophets are just prophets. And everybody knows, everybody knows who has said over who. I mean, Jeremiah, if you read his story, towards the end of the book, he ends up uh, in the bottom of a well, starving to death, and then is rescued only to be put into prison because that's what kings who have power can do to you if you oppose them. So what God is saying here is really rather striking. Uh, There's a place in Paul's letter to the Corinthians in the New Testament where he's talking about issues of of spiritual um, discipline in the church. And here's what he says to the church in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 6. He says, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? Now, that's that's, that's radical. That is amazing. What Paul's saying I mean, here's what Paul is saying. He's saying that, that there are a number of places, there, not just here, but other places in Paul's writings where he teaches that at the end of the age, we, if your faith is in, if you are in Christ, at the end of the age, we will be entrusted with the task of ruling and judging over the world with Christ Jesus. That we will sit on thrones and we will rule and we will judge. And what Paul is saying to the Corinthians, is that if part of our job description in heaven will be to judge, and if God is transforming us throughout our earthly pilgrimage into people who can be entrusted with that task, then we should humbly, cautiously begin to do that sort of thing even now. What does it mean for us? According to the Bible... The church is the place on earth where the rule of heaven is mediated, not the law courts. He doesn't know it, but not Grady Judd's office, right? Not the legislature in Tallahassee or the Capitol building in Washington. The church is the place on earth where the rule of heaven is being mediated on the earth. And so there's a certain, there's a certain authority that we have been given as few and as frail and as weak as we are, and we need to understand that. But secondly, there's a task to which we're called, for which we've been given this authority. If you keep going in verse 10, he says, 
I've set you this day over the nations and over kingdoms, and here's the task, to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to plant, excuse me, to build and to plant. Now, Jeremiah's message was pretty consistent. He warned people of God's judgment against sin. He told them if they did not repent that God was going to wipe them out. And that's what that language there of breaking down and destroying and overthrowing means. Jeremiah's job was to say the hard things, the things nobody wanted to hear, the things nobody else was willing to say. His was a ministry of tearing down and destroying, not of building up and planting. And, and so what this means for Jeremiah was is nobody in his church came to him after the sermon and said, you know, you make me feel so good about myself. <laughs> right? I just feel so uplifted. And Jeremiah talked about sin and God's wrath and judgment and hell and all the other things that we don't like to talk about because they make us feel bad about ourselves. But what does this mean for us? Well, part of our job in the world is to be the bearer of bad news. I mean, the Christian gospel is good news, right? But the good news only makes sense in light of the bad news. And what's the bad news? The bad news is God is a righteous judge and he hates sin, and all have sinned and rebelled against him, and God does not wink at that. We are, we, um, his justice demands that he punish sin where he finds it, and our job is to stand up against sin and unbelief wherever we find it, and to say, no, that's wrong. That's not okay, because there's a God in heaven who made us, and we owe him our every breath, and to try to live without him is the same as trying to drive a car without gas. So there are a number of adjectives that our culture wishes that we as the church would, be, would describe us. There, I thought of this. A number of adjectives that I think the culture wishes would describe us. Things like accepting and inclusive and tolerant. Then there are the adjectives that I would like, I wish would describe us. Right? Loving. Welcoming. All these kinds of things. But then there's the one adjective that we're not going to be able to avoid, I'm afraid, because of the trajectory of our culture at the moment. And it's the adjective offensive. And I hate conflict. Can I, I mean, listen, if you know me, you know this. I hate conflict. I hate it. I'll destroy relationships for the sake of not wanting to get into a conflict situation. I hate it. But I don't see how we can avoid the charge and be faithful. To be called offensive is the worst put down at our disposal currently in our culture. But the problem is, the way we've defined love, it, love means yes. If you love me, you yes me. Right? You just yes me. But the pro- Jesus says sometimes love means no. In his letter to the Galatians, the Apostle Paul is sad uh, at one point in the letter that he's writing because his relationship with his friends in the church had been damaged by false teachers and at one point he says in verse verse 16 of chapter 4 he says i have i become your enemy because i i told you the truth i mean paul has been he's been offensive he's hurt their feelings he's spoken the truth to them they've not taken it well it's kind of the relationships begin to unravel and what he does is he begins to contrast his ministry with the ministry of the false teachers he says they make much of you but for no good purpose in other words he's saying these guys that you like so much You've you've rejected me, and you've turned to these other people, but they flatter you, and you love them, but you don't realize that they're flattering you because they're flattered flattered by your approval of them. And I'm loving you by speaking the truth, 
but you're mad at me because what I have to say doesn't make you feel good about yourself. And then later, later he goes on to say that the reason they're so put off, the reason they're so put off by him is because there's something in the Christian message that is itself inherently offensive. He calls it the offense of the cross there in Galatians 5. The offense of the cross. Now, what's that? Now, the cross, you see, is offensive because it's a verdict. God looks at our lives. He sees the sin and rebellion that characterizes us, and he says, no. I mean, the cross is offensive because it shows us that we're not right. We're wrong. We don't deserve a well done and a pat on the back. We deserve death and hell. The cross is not just affirmation. Of course it's that. But it's also a critique as well. It's always both. And if the message of Christianity is about the cross, which it is, then there is something inherently offensive about it. And that means, I think, I think, and I'm just, I want us to gear ourselves up. That means that it is impossible for us if we remain faithful to the cross to escape the charge of being offensive. And that's why, over and over again here in chapter 1 of Jeremiah's book, the Lord shows him what the reaction is going to be to prepare him. Do you see verse 19? He says, they will fight against you. Another translation of that, they will make war with you. But they shall not prevail. So that's what it means to live prophetically. That's a little snapshot of what I think, part of what the the Bible would call us to be is people who live before uh, the powers prophetically. But second, the second thing is, is what do we need then? What's it going to take? What's it going to take to live this way? And here we can see just from Jeremiah's, the journey that Jeremiah undergoes here in this passage, exactly what the obstacles to this are, okay? So let's look back in the passage again. What, what is Jeremiah's immediate reaction to God's call? Verse 6. Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I'm only a youth. Now, lest we misunderstand, let me just translate that for you. Here's what Jeremiah is saying. God, I'm afraid. I mean, that's what he means. That's what he's saying. I don't want to do this because I'm afraid. I know, I know this because of what Jeremiah, uh, excuse me, um, I know that's what Jeremiah means because of what happens next. The Lord rebukes him. You see in the ver- next verse, don't say I'm only a youth, he says, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. And so what you see here is Jeremiah is reluctant here at the very beginning, but his reluctance is not humility, it's unbelief. It assumes that when God calls you to something, the success of the project is dependent upon you and not him and his resources. Or, or it assumes that he can't provide for you all that you will need when the heat gets turned up. So you can imagine the kinds of things Jeremiah's thinking. He's thinking, they're going to hate me. They're going to think I'm stupid. This is going to cost me relationships. All of these things. So what do we need to live prophetically, to confront the powers, to take a stand for what is right, no matter what the consequences might be, we need, we need courage. We need fortitude. Call it whatever you want. We need thick skin. We need toughness. It's exactly what God promises to do in his prophet and in us as well. Verses 17 through 19, if you look down at the very end of the passage with me, he says to Jeremiah, address yourself for work. Arise. Say to them everything that I command you. Do not be dismayed by them. And here's, here's the part. And behold... I will make you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar, a bronze wall against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, and they will fight against you, but they shall not prevail, for I am with you. Now, what does that mean? 
Did you notice the part of the passage when Susan read it earlier up in verse 9 where God comes to Jeremiah and he touches his mouth in a very similar way as what he did with Isaiah when we looked at that a couple of weeks ago. And the commentators say that this is a way of describing, a way of just trying to describe the experience of the power of God coming upon Jeremiah to transform him into the man that he must be in order to fulfill his calling. And here's Jeremiah, right? Young, inexperienced, afraid, knees knocking. And then God touches him. God goes to work on him and he says, when I'm done with you, you will be a fortified city. You'll be an iron pillar. Uh, You'll be a bronze wall, right? Not just a city. Not just a city, but a fortified city. Or maybe a better translation is a fort. And I remember when the Winfreys were in Wales back in 2003, my family, there were only four of us then, we had a chance to go uh, and visit them for three weeks. And one of the things that we did that was my favorite thing to do is we went and saw a lot of the castles there in Wales, these structures that were thousands, you know, not thousands, but maybe a thousand-year-old castles, uh, and yet they still are there. I mean, the stones are still intact, and you can imagine the battles they endured and the ammunitions throughout the centuries that pounded into their walls, and yet they still stand, and so many words comes, come to mind, right? Sturdy, strong, tough, resilient. I will make you a fortified city, the Lord says, and I'll make you an iron pillar, not just a pillar, but an iron pillar, which was the strongest kind of pillar able to bear up an enormous amount of weight and pressure. I'll make you not just an ordinary wall, but a bronze wall, he says. Do you see see what these images are trying to convey here? Jeremiah, there you are, young and experienced, your knees knocking, afraid to death to speak the truth for fear of the consequences that it might bring. But if you allow me, when I'm done with you, this is what I'll turn you into. And the reason prophets, you know the, the prophet type of person, The reason prophets are so rare, truth-tellers, is because it takes a certain constitution. (laughs) I mean, the truth-tellers among us have it harder than most of us because they're constantly upsetting people. It's their spiritual gift. (laughs) Uh, You know, and unless you are one, we laugh about that. But 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 there really is something about that. They are misunderstood. They're underappreciated. There aren't a lot of warm fuzzies. And it was certainly true for Jeremiah. He was hated, and he was abused and he was beaten and he was imprisoned but it's wrong to assume that we all should just leave the truth telling to the people who can take it what this passage teaches us is that part of the work of God in our sanctification is that in the process of God changing us and making us more like Jesus is that he would work into every single one of us the emotional wealth and courage and constitution That truth-telling requires, I will make you a fortified city, he would say to us, so that you can take a stand against evil, and when they vilify you and they call you names, you won't be moved. I remember uh, one of the first trips I took to India years ago, we were talking to one of the pastors there about an anti-conversion law that the Hindu majority legislature was considering at the time, and the law would have made it illegal for Christians to share the gospel uh, with Hindus. And so we were talking about this and being silly Americans. I had other adjectives, but I stuck with silly. Being silly Americans, we asked this pastor, well, what, what are you going to do? <laughs> he kind of looked at us and chuckled and said, well, it won't make any difference. We'll continue to preach the gospel. And we said in our naivety, we said, well, what if they arrest you and throw you into prison? Prison. And you know what his answer was? 
he looked at us and he kind of pondered for a second. And he said, if they throw us into prison, then we will preach the gospel in the prison they throw us in. I will make you a fortified city. Now, that's something that we, with all of our religious liberty and vestiges of social respectability that we still enjoy in our culture, it's something we can hardly imagine. But as we continue to witness the massive moral collapse that's happening, that's really the way that I would describe it. If you've been to the Publix over here and seen the sinkhole, right? A sinkhole sinkhole emerges because uh, there's an erosion in the soil that's happened underneath it. And just like there's an erosion of faith that has until recently been underground and unnoticed in our culture, now things are starting to collapse And I wonder, what will our response be? Will it be panic? Fear? Here in our community, it's still probably an advantage to be, uh, an advantage to business to be a part of a church. But what if you lived in the Northeast? What if you were in a community where going to church was bad for business? Would you still do it? What if it meant you became a social outcast? If the day comes when your contribution to the church doesn't get you a tax write-off, will you still give it? Ah, it's being, I know that's being sensational. But these are things we have to begin to consider. And those are really big issues I know about what the... And, uh, but what about, you know, the work we have to do for one another in marriage and our friendships? The good work the Apostle calls us to in Ephesians chapter 4 when he says, no longer being tossed to and fro and back and forth by every wave here and there, right? The opposite of the fortitude we're talking about, but speaking the truth in love, which he says is the way the church grows into maturity in unity of the faith. There's no other way for us to grow into Christ-likeness than for us to be committed to the work of speaking the truth and love to one another. So will we have the the courage to do that? And so lastly then, what we have to deal with right here at the end is, then where does this emotional fortitude and courage come from? Again, not necessarily talking about temperamental toughness. We're talking about spirit-generated, supernatural, humble, dependent, Boldness and toughness that God would work into our life. And here's where it comes from. And you see it here in this passage very clearly. It comes from knowing that God is for you. I mean, in this sermon series, has been a long journey, both for the Israelites and for us. But every step along the way, have you just noticed how often the Lord keeps saying to his people, I will be with you, I will be with you, I will be with you. And here again, verse 8, don't be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you. Verse 19, They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail, for I am with you to deliver you. But my favorite promise like this in this passage is right in the middle of verse 12 where the Lord says, I'm working, I'm with you, I'm watching over my word to perform it. Isn't that a great great statement? God is watching over his word. That's That's why we picked Isaiah 55 for the call to worship. My word goes forth, it accomplishes the thing for which I send it. What a great, what a great, I'm telling you, on Sunday mornings, like, you know, this morning for a pastor, that is a great word to hold on to because pastors, on Sunday afternoons, you know, dark days for pastors usually, does any of the thing, you know, I could preach the same sermon next week and nobody would even probably know the difference. Does any of it matter at all? And the Lord says, no, I, my word, I'm watching over my word to perform it. Or for our truth telling to one another, right? God would say, I, if you will speak, my words, I will watch over them to perform them in the lives of other people. Parents, as you parent your children and you give them all this advice and they look at you like, eh, I know, right? And you think, why am I even bothering? What, what's the point? 
right? What you, there, there's a sense in which God would say to you, keep speaking the words to them because I will watch over my words to perform them. Or when things seem to be spinning out of control around you, God would say, don't worry, I'm watching, I'm watching over my word to perform it. God can't be defeated. His purposes shall stand. Don't worry, Jeremiah. I will be with you. They will try to kill you, but I will deliver you. And this word too, this word too, the word I've promised you here, that I will deliver you, that word too, I will be watching over that one to perform it for you as well. So supernatural toughness and courage comes from knowing that God is for you. But what distinguishes it from temperamental toughness and courage is that even though you might believe God, when he says, I will be with you, and it might fill you with strength. You might believe, and when he says, I'll be with you, you know that he shouldn't be. In other words, you hear God say, I'm with you, and you know that it's sheer grace. That God should, I mean, let's, God should come against all of us. He should come against us if he treated us as our sins deserved. And yet he says here, I'll be with you. And even though we hear it, we know, oh, God, it's so grateful that you, you're with me, because I know, in reality, you shouldn't be. And what that does is, is it produces, there's always this tinge then of people who know that. This tinge of humility and gentleness, not self-righteousness. And Jeremiah is the man who produced lamentations. And lamentations is his response to, to the, the sinkhole that just swallowed up his entire culture. And in, and in lamentations, here's what Jeremiah does. He confesses his sins and he expresses his sadness. In lamentations, Jeremiah doesn't say, God, I'm glad you got all those bad guys. He confesses his sins and he grieves for his people. He says, man, I'm undone by your mercy. And our truth-telling in the culture should take the same shape. We're not squaring off against the bad guys. The church in the world, okay, let's get this right. The church in the world is not Rocky Balboa versus Ivan Drago, okay? That's not it. That's not the way it is. The line that divides good and evil isn't the Mason-Dixon line. Okay, the line between good and evil runs through every human heart. As Alexander Solzhen, I can't even say his last name, I'm not going to try. I had it, but then I totally lost it. You may spell it, here it is, ready? S-O-L-Z-H-E-N-I-T-S-Y-N. You figure that one out. Ah, I'm, never mind. Here's what he said, it was profound. He said, the line between good and evil runs through every human heart, not through states or nations, not through classes, not through political parties, through every single human heart. We are Christians only by the mercy of God. God is forced in Christ Jesus, but he should not be. It's a miracle of mercy. And the difference between temperamental toughness and supernatural spirit-generated toughness takes that into account. And so here's what it's characterized by then. Let me just end with these practical applications. It would be characterized, and I try to make these memorable, so don't make fun of my alliteration and those kinds of things. But uh, first, it would be characterized then by reasonableness, not irrationality. It may sound counterintuitive, but the most courageous truth-telling is always soft. It's measured. The most courageous truth-telling has very little will in it because it lives by faith. It's not panicky. It doesn't catastrophize. It doesn't get drawn into the emotionalism of the controversy. It's reasonable. And I think that word is really helpful because it's, it's the word, I think, because it describes what we are called to do and also, also how we are to do it. On his missionary journeys, Paul did this. He spoke into the culture 
But the way the Bible describes it, the Bible says that he reasoned with them. He doesn't say he went to the synagogue and began to yell at the people. Right? He didn't respond on Facebook in all caps. Right? That's my favorite kind of yelling is the yelling people do online. Right? All caps, bold, underlined. Exclamation, exclamation, exclamation. Right? He didn't yell. He reasoned. He reasoned. He persuaded. He made arguments and counterarguments. Paul entered into intelligent, thoughtful dialogue with the unbelieving culture around him. And that's what is completely missing in the way that we disagree with one another in our culture. We are completely unreasonable. We yell. We deride. We mock. We mock but spirit-generated uh, toughness listens. It tries to understand the other side because it knows it's been wrong before. So there's reasonableness, not irrationality. But secondly, truly prophetic, this, this kind of toughness has a sense of reluctance, not relish. And it was definitely true of Jeremiah. If you look at Jeremiah 20, you know, Jeremiah 20, he says to the Lord, you've, you've made my life hard, God. I don't like this assignment, but I can't stop. There's a fire in my bones. And if you relish the role of prophet, if you love the confrontation, if it's thrilling to you, can I just be your friend and say, be really careful. I know I said earlier that Jeremiah's reluctance at the beginning was unbelief, but then he obeyed. And what's fascinating is then after he obeyed, there was a lingering reluctance that was appropriate that made him dependent upon God that is essential. So if you're not humble, can I just speak for, for Christians who are trying to engage well with the culture? If you're not humble, if you're not a little bit unsure of yourself, if instead you're cocky or self-confidence, can you please just be quiet? Because it's not helpful. Lastly, uh, there's reasonableness, not irrationality. There's reluctance, not relish. But then lastly, what happens is, is with this spirit-generated toughness, the truth doesn't become a weapon. It becomes weeping. Jeremiah has every reason to be self-righteous. He has every motivation to take the truth and to use it as a hammer and just beat people to death with it, but he doesn't. In fact, quite the opposite. If you know, if you've been around the church for a while, you know uh, that Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. And the reason we call him the weeping prophet is because he traditionally is considered the author of the book of Lamentations, which we're going to look at next week. But really throughout all of his ministry, he's weeping. He's a man who walks around with a broken heart. He grieves the sins of his people. He doesn't wag his finger. Right, he weeps. He doesn't all caps online. He he weeps. He doesn't argue. He weeps, and his weeping is the sign of his compassion. And I mean, what 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 it is that God's you know what does God say they're going to do? They will fight against you. And try, time and time again, they try to kill him. They throw him into a well and leave him to starve to death. He ends up in prison for the last years of his life. And yet, when he writes about his city, he weeps for his people. He weeps. For a city, he grieves the people who wanted to kill him. Does that remind you of anyone? In the Gospel of Luke, at the very end of Jesus' ministry, he's coming into Jerusalem for the last time, and the crowds have lined the roads to cheer and laud him. I mean, okay, you have to picture uh, a victory parade in New York City after the Yankees win the World Series, okay? That's what this is. So finally, he is getting the kind of praise and recognition that he has deserved all along. And if you can remember the flannel graphs from VBS as a kid, you know that there's Jesus riding on the donkey in the moment of his triumph, radiant. I picture him doing his best princess wave to the crowd as he goes down the street, right? But that's not at all what he was doing. 
listen to how Luke records it. He says, and when they drew near, and when he saw the city, he wept over it. The crowds are cheering. The confetti is falling. There are hugs and celebration. And there is Jesus weeping because he knows the destruction that is about to come because of their sin. And if you are watching things erode in our nation, and if you watch the news and you see the president or some political leader or whoever it might be, and your blood begins to boil and you're just so angry, can I just encourage you? You probably ought to be quiet. But if God were to come and begin to break our hearts, if we would start like Jeremiah did in Lamentations with confession and sadness, then we would be getting closer to becoming the kind of people who can speak prophetically into our culture, but with the kind of voice that just might be heard. See, when Jesus looked at us and saw our sin, he did not get red-faced. He didn't go to the cross begrudgingly saying, these stupid people, I don't know why I let myself get talked into this. No, when Jesus looked upon the city, he wept. Your sin broke his heart. And in compassion, He came from heaven to earth and went to the cross to die for us. Now, if you see him doing that, then what will happen is, in God's, uh, I I pray that the spirit would come and seeing Jesus' broken heart for us in our sin, that it would give us broken hearts for others who live in, in their sin so that we might move towards them in compassion, knowing that part of that compassionate movement is a movement with the truth. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. That you did not leave us in our sins, that you came and your message was clear. I am the truth and the truth will set you free. That you have offered us a truth that can truly free our hearts from all of the things that hold us into bondage. And you have given to us uh, the ministry of reconciliation, as Jonathan prayed earlier, that there is a message of truth and, and it's good news and it's bad news and that we have to be a people faithful to take up our role and to live prophetically in the culture that you've called us to. And that's a scary, and I'm, I'm afraid. I'm afraid of what people will think of me. I'm afraid of being called a nut job. I'm afraid of being, of being thought of as being Westboro Baptist Church. But the opposite is not helpful for me to swing the pendulum all the way over and just never say anything that's hard and never confront anybody and never challenge anything. So, Father, please give us great wisdom. That's what we need. And give us great courage and fortitude and toughness that we might be faithful to heed the apostle when he tells us that the work that we are to do in one another's lives is to speak the truth in love and so build one another up. That we would also be willing to take uh, the truth to the powers and to live prophetically before them. So that we might be uh, the people that you desire for us to be and that the church might fulfill the role, be salt and light in the world that you have called us to. Oh God, come. Humble us and then raise us from the ashes of our own repentance and touch our lips and give us words to say, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, indeed. We believe that he now uh, sends us. We are the church gathered uh, to be sent. And so he now sends us into the world, uh, the very same world that he came into. We now continue his mission and he sends us with words that tear down and destroy, but also with words that plant and build up. And so where you meet with people uh, who are opposed to you, where you meet with hostility and persecution, whatever it might be, 
the way you find courage is to know that as he sends you, I raise my hands over you to speak a benediction that, that the Lord would say, I send you to the ends of the earth, but surely I'm with you always to the end of the age. And so receive the benediction then as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.